Hello and welcome to the Decentralized Justice Broadcast. I am Federico Ast. I am president at Cooperative Cleros. And this is the first episode of our second season of a podcast. I am thrilled to have today computer scientist Mark Miller, one of the pioneers of the early days of the internet and a participant in the legendary Xanadu project. This was like Web3 before Web3 in the 1970s. In this one hour long conversation, we discuss many things about the early days of the internet and what we can expect for the future. Enjoy. Hello and welcome uh, to the Centralized Justice broadcast. This is the first episode of our second uh, season. And we are very happy to have here a person I greatly admire, uh, Mark Miller. Let me tell you something about him. So Mark is an American computer scientist. Uh, he is known for his work as one of the participants in the 1979 hypertext project known as Project Xanadu that we will discuss a bit later uh, for inventing Miller columns and the open source coordinator of the e-programming language. Miller is a senior research fellow at the Foresight Institute and chief scientist at Agoric. How are you, Mark? Great to have you here. Yeah, same here. Tell me what was your first computer? I mean. <laughs> Oh, my first computer. That's a that's a good story. Uh, my first computer was a Kremenko Z1, uh, which for which I still have the front panel. Um, it was a, a Z80 machine. Um, uh, Z80 was uh, a successor to the 8080 done by a spin-out company named Zilog. Uh, it was an 8-bit computer. Uh, and when I first got my Kremenko Z1, just to give you an idea of how how early this was in the personal computer revolution uh, is it had 4K of memory uh, and the only IO device was the front panel itself. Uh, and I actually uh, would um, write down assembly language code on paper, hand assemble it into machine code, toggle it in through the front panel, and then do little animations on the front panel with the LED lights interacting with the little um, uh, uh, flip switches. Um, and uh, that, that was my very first computer. Well, what year was this? Oh, God. Uh, this would have been 77, I would guess. I don't know. I would guess about 77, yeah. Tell us um, a bit about uh, what it looked like in those early days of, of, of computing. How did you become interested in, in this industry? And then, well, you went to, to study this at the, at the university. Tell us a bit about those early days of, of the computer industry. Okay. So my first contact with the computer, uh, that one I can date more reliably as uh, 1975, when I became a, a freshman in college. I entered college not thinking about computers, uh, planning to be a math major. A friend of mine showed me the Star Trek game on the uh, on the on the university's uh, PDP-10. The Star Trek game was a game that was using character graphics. There was a matrix of characters, and the different characters were used to illustrate spaceships or photon torpedoes, and it was textual input to move around. Uh, and it was fun. But the thing that just struck me as soon as I saw it was this was the first time I had ever really encountered the power of universality, the power of Turing universality. I realized this machine that I'm interacting with was not a machine that was built to be a Star Trek game machine. It was a general purpose machine in which a program was written to turn it into a game. And if you could write a program to turn it into this game, you could write a program to do anything. And I was just completely just blown away by the power of universality. And within two weeks of playing with the thing, I, I decided that this was going to be my profession. This was just so far beyond anything that I knew was even possible. Good. Um, and so this was in the in the 70s. So you were at, at, at Yale, right? That's correct. And how did you did you get involved with the project Sanadu? I first got to meet you because I read this book by Jaron Lanier, who owns the future. And in that uh, book, he kept uh, mentioning Project Sanadu as a different architecture for the for the web, different to the one that ended up winning with Tim Berners-Lee World Wide Web. Uh, 
design. And this was a third nation. It was a completely revolutionary way of thinking about the web. Tell us a bit more about how it worked and what was your involvement there. Yeah, so this was another introduction by a friend of mine as an undergrad who handed me a copy of Ted's wonderful book, Computer Lib Dream Machines, which was self-published in 1974. Uh, Computer Lib is like the, the, the perfect title because it was getting across this notion of the computer, not just as a new technology, but as a new home for the mind and as a new force for liberation, including social liberation. That um, contrasting the, the world as people were experiencing computers then, which were centralized mainframes, with what Ted saw back then in 74 when he was writing the book as the upcoming personal computer revolution, which was quite visionary at the time. That was before the Altair came out, the Altair, uh, you know, 8080. You know, he had a great vision of the computer screen as Doug Engelbart's term, augmenting the human intellect. Uh, Doug, uh, Ted and Doug were, were colleagues going way back. Um, uh, but Ted was really a very taken with interactive systems. And it was in that book that Ted laid out his vision for Project Xanadu, which was a worldwide hypertext publishing system. So there were basically two great hypertext visionaries in the 60s, which was Doug Engelbart and Ted Nelson. And Doug Engelbart was very much focused on workgroup hypertext, hypertext separate hypertext for small work groups. And Ted was focused on decentralized hypertext publishing, you know, coming worldwide networks. And Ted was also uh, focused on the notion of that being a permissionless system. Uh, where, you know, obviously, we didn't have the terminology back then, but a system in which uh, it would uphold the ideals that we prized of free speech, of being censorship-free, of, of having a history with integrity. Uh, Ted and I were both very much terrified by the 1984 George Orwell uh, vision of an oppressive future. And I apprenticed myself to Ted after having read that book. I called Ted up. He was a professor at Swarthmore. And I just decided... This book, more than what I was learning at Yale, this book really represented the computer science that I most wanted to learn. So I just offered to apprentice myself to him for free over the summers to work on his projects, especially Xanadu. And that's how I got involved. And I really absorbed from him this notion that the future of computers could be a 1984 oppressive style future or could be a future of great liberation and decentralization. And that um, especially absorbed from him this notion that of taking it as my as our personal responsibility to design the architectures that would lead the world to using this new power in a liberating fashion, not an oppressive fashion. This was even way before the cypherpunks, right? Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> this was why, when I look back on it, and you know, there's a story of how I reacted when the RSA paper first came out, and um, my my role in getting that paper uh, disseminated so that it couldn't be it couldn't be suppressed. But when I look back on that, and I think, well, how is it? that I immediately understood the significance of this paper when I read about it in Scientific American. Martin Gardner's Scientific American column explained the power of public key cryptography, the significance of it, what it could do, but without explaining the algorithm itself. And when that happened, I called up Ted in the middle of the night, very excited, woke him up and said, Ted, we can prevent the ministry of truth. And I think that the reason I was set up to appreciate that paper when it first came out is Ted and I had set out to try to solve the problem of decentralized, censorship-free, incorruptible, worldwide publishing, electronic publishing, had set out to try to solve that during the era of ancient cryptography, the, the era before, you know, the RSA paper really marks the beginning of public of modern cryptography. And we couldn't figure it out. It was just, you know, it was, it was just too hard. It seemed like an unsolvable puzzle. So when I when I saw that paper, I realized 
this is the critical technology that enables our dreams of a incorruptible publishing system to be possible. That's, that's interesting. So this was in the in the seventies, eighties. Um, that's right. The, the Scientific American, the Martin Gardner column, was August nineteen seventy seven. The actual publication of the RSA paper was in Communications of the ACM. February 1978. And once that paper was published, then it was all over. It was the cat was out of the bag. We were on the new road. Uh, and, then, and then in 1990, that's when Tim Berners-Lee, I mean, comes up with the World Wide Web, right? I think 89-90. Well, and we get the internet we have now. And um, what was your thought? I mean, did you see all of those fears coming true? I mean, maybe not at the beginning, but then when we started having these big tech platforms, tell me a bit about how it was for someone who had been fighting for internet freedom since before the internet, see what happened after. So I have to admit that when the World Wide Web came out, I underappreciated. The particular thing that I underappreciated back then was the phenomena that we now call open source. Richard Stallman back then had already been talking about free software, free as in speech, not as in beer, as he says. <laughs> um, his explanations for why free software were good, were very alienating to me. They caused me to not really appreciate what was so good about it. So Xanadu at the time was being pursued as a proprietary project. And the World Wide Web, the technology, actually, the technological foundations in many ways really sucked. Uh, it was, you know, Every time you do the equivalent of a single RPC, you do a, you set up a separate TCP connection that you set up for set up for one R, RPC call, and then you tear it down. Um, the the single worst thing about the World Wide Web is that the thing that identifies a document has the host name in it, meaning that you can only you know using that identifier, the only thing that represents the document itself is the document served by that host which means you have to authenticate the host, which means that a popular document, the, the server that hosts it becomes a bottleneck. And it also uh, inherently in the architecture contradicts some of the freedom goals that we took to heart at Xanadu. Like one of the things that still astonishes me that the world has been willing to give up. One of our principles was no one can tell what you're reading. And today, not only Can the server that serves the documents tell what documents are being requested or anybody you know, um, uh, in the right position can, can uh, figure that out? But the, the server that serves the document, given the way modern web technologies work, can tell how much time you're spending scrolled to different parts of your document and where the cursor is over the document. I mean, you can tell what you're paying attention to. It's just the degree of privacy loss we've had in the in the read-only process of reading, much less publishing, has just been astonishingly terrible. Um, so there was just many, many things that were, uh, oh, and the, um, uh, the, the identifier was simply identifying whatever the server would serve now. So there was no historical integrity. There was no integrity of publishing that once published The thing that was published would always be stable. Um, uh, and of course, uh, Zanid, a lot of the Xanadu vision had to do with the bi-directional linking in support of argumentation, in support of criticism, in the, in, so that the extended conversation about ideas and the way in which ideas evolve over time through criticism, uh, the, the um, you know, Popperian view of the evolution of knowledge, Uh, was very much part of our motivation. And uh, the World Wide Web, of course, was all oriented around um, uh, forward links, uh, links in the forward direction, where from a document, you could see what it criticizes. But from a document, it was very hard to find out what criticizes it. So you got to see the document defending its own ideas, but you didn't get to see Uh, other documents attacking the document that was trying to convince you, which kind of leads to a reading dynamic that's the, that's the opposite of active skepticism. So in all of these ways, we felt like the World Wide Web is on the wrong track, but we didn't appreciate that its uh, openness um, uh, was 
at least as important as the thing that it got right that we were getting wrong, uh, that uh, at least as important as all of the things that we thought it was getting wrong. I mean, I cannot help but want, but wonder, like, what would the internet look like today if Zenadu had, had won that that race? Well, <laughs> the um, yeah, I, I think about that a lot. Um, I think there's. I wrote, uh, I wrote a paper back then. Um, just uh, paper, and I wrote it in 1992. Um, uh, it's available on if you if, to a web search called "The Open Society and Its Media," which uh, and that was in 1992. I was able to contrast uh, Zan the Xanadu um, attributes with other hypertext systems, including the World Wide Web and arguing for the Xanadu perspective. And there's there's a couple of paragraphs in that paper where I kind of anticipate the phenomena that we now call filter bubbles or echo chambers. And I tie it exactly into this issue about the reading dynamics, the dynamics of the on the on the feedback loop, on the evolution of knowledge, of having a system that only has forward links uh, versus a system that's really built to be navigable in both directions and built to really support this act active skepticism on the reading process. Now, looking back on that, what I, what I underestimated are a whole bunch of psychological and sociological factors that lead to pathological evolution of knowledge in the presence of digital media anyway. So I think that the the hope that we had at Xanadu, that the system that we were building would lead to a positive evolution of knowledge was still naive. There were all sorts of, of uh, things like uh, people are, you know, thing, things like confirmation bias, things like uh, people being attracted to ideas based on their entertainment value and the degree to which they provide psychological reinforcement for what they want to believe as opposed to people approaching the corpus with genuine curiosity, trying to figure out what's true. Nevertheless, a small number of people genuinely curious and trying to figure out what's true, if we could provide them better tools to help them figure out in collaboration with each other what's genuinely true, can still have a lot of upstream influence on the evolution of knowledge of everyone else. Um, and you know, I think I think that to a large extent, we're groping our way back to that. Um, the search engines, uh, uh, which have you know now now quite old and and um, uh, part of the web in practice, going back now for for quite a long time, uh, was also not something that we anticipated either in in the Xanadu effort nor in. Uh, looking at the Xanadu competitors. That was all before any of these search engines. Uh, and the search engines uh, give you a sort of a different place to stand to, to, to get a lot of this uh, bi-directional feedback. We have some question, you can do a search on it and get all sorts of different uh, answers to you know, relevant documents, relevant to the thing you're searching about. Um, so I think that it's always messier than the visionaries um, anticipate. Uh, the world is just always a larger and more messier place than anyone can ever imagine looking forward. Um, and it's very easy to, to, you know, the contrast that stands out to me is what happened versus what we were imagining. But of course, if we had won, then there would be all sorts of pathologies that we weren't imagining that would be the way the world became messy on top of our technology also. So I also have a certain degree of humility. I don't know that things would have been better. All I know is things would have been different. That's interesting. I mean, that title of the paper, The Open Society and Its Media, I mean, I can detect some like a reference to Popper there. That's correct? Yeah, what, that's correct. That's exactly what's that right. reference? I mean, what's that connection? Okay, so the title, was a play on Popper's uh, uh, paper, The Open Society and Its Enemies. Um, but um, it the paper itself was not directly uh, an answer to that paper of Popper's, but, the, the, but it was very much tied to Popper's general 
approach to the evolution of knowledge. So, so evolution of knowledge is sort of the key phrase for understanding Popper, which is um, that he sees, he understands that there's no official, there's no source of truth. You can't go, there's, there's no procedure that is a reliable procedure for figuring out what is true. That uh, in the same sense that, that biology does not have a procedure for figuring out an, a, a creature that is ideally adapted to the world. Instead, in both cases, there is a process of variation, replication, and selection. The variation is uh, you know, coming up with new ideas, coming up with variations on ideas. Uh, the replication is the, the dissemination of ideas. The, the, the selection is the one that, well, the selection that Popper was most focused on was critical experiments, like in physics. So that's why Popper's epistemology is really focused on the epistemology of science with physics as sort of taken as the ideal example, where he's looking at critical experiments that can falsify. And falsification is kind of the central theme of Popper's evolution of knowledge, where, for example, uh, that, critical, that critical observation about that was predicted ahead of time um, during the eclipse, does the star get displaced according to the Einsteinian prediction, or does it stay in place as you would expect from Newtonian physics? And when the star was displaced, that kind of was the critical falsification. That in the Michelson-Morley experiment earlier was the critical falsifications of, of Newtonian physics. Um, but the problem with falsificationism, we're now, we're now this is becoming a, a podcast about, pop, about epistemology. Uh, but we should feel free to, I mean, if you're willing, we should go ahead and do um, another one of these where we can get into like the split contracts and more of the, some of the other things that you and I could have a great conversation about, but I'll, I'll continue on this theme here. Um, so the problem with falsificationism is the idea that a hypothesis has been definitively falsified is itself a a, a proposition that we cannot reliably know is true. After the Michelson-Morley experiment, we did not simply know definitively that Newtonian mechanics was false. It was the, you can't say it was definitively falsified. Uh, there was continued to be arguments about it and there needed to be arguments about it. And one could you know, all imagine that tomorrow somebody's gonna come up with some new variation of how to argue that 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 Michelson Morley does not necessarily falsify Newtonian mechanics. I can't imagine what that argument would be, but we can't rule out the possibility. So, so really, the the philosophical perspective that was most of influence on my on me, um, and I would say on much of the Xanadu community was from Harper's uh, student William Bartley who focused in on criticism rather than falsificationism. Uh, and that's one that really generalizes from uh, evolution of science per se to evolution of knowledge in general. And what separates good versus bad evolution of knowledge is criticizability. Popper was stuck in a, a bit of a paradox where Popper's falsificationism, Popper's um, uh, critical rationalism, as he called it, was itself not a falsifiable hypothesis. So Popper was saying that scientific hypotheses should be falsifiable, but Popper's scientific um, uh, methodology itself was not falsifiable. So Popper ended up having to, to uh, create this separate category of, of um, metaphysics, as he called it, because he couldn't figure out how to, to include his own philosophy under his criteria of what a scientific hypothesis should be. Uh, Bartley, in generalizing from falsification to criticizability, where criticizability comes in sort of an infinitely expanding tree. You can always criticize the criticism. You can criticize the, criti the criticisms of the criticism. And that 
um, uh, the and and that that this this um, this tree can always be extended with only with the only limit being scarcity of attention uh, and what it is people are convinced conv at, at what point people are convinced by the arguments in front of them the but the thing the brilliant thing that Bartley did in his book um, uh, the retreat to commitment is he had a chapter where he criticized his own philosophy. He did a, 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 a you know, he did a great, he, he, he did a great job, I would say a better job than any of his critics have ever have, have done before or afterwards at laying out how to criticize his own philosophy and to really do everything he could to make it look weak and thereby demonstrate that there that he's escaped the Paparian paradox, that everything can be held open to criticism, including the theory that everything can be held open to criticism. Uh, there are so many like uh, current topics here, and it's amazing like how many different disciplines you combine into your I mean work. I mean, first you started with math, computer science, you know, but you were like doing social philosophy and epistemology. So this is like a combination of, and so many topics, you know, uh, first, I mean, permissionless publishing, you know, uh, censorship resistance, um, like um, uh, these uh, different ways of linking you no know, articles and so the traceability. I mean, that you were like not very far from like uh, fake news and misinformation. I mean, uh, in your in yeah. your early, early thoughts. And tell me a bit how, I mean, when crypto arrived, I mean, when did you first, I mean, learn about about crypto i mean i i'm guessing really early and uh, and you and we can well, speak a bit about split contracts if you want as well <laughs> yeah so on, on so by by uh, crypto meaning cryptography uh it was the uh scientific american uh, article announcing the invention of public key cryptography and explaining the significance and then it was the rsa paper itself which i managed to get my hands on while the government was trying to suppress its publication. Um, and uh, then just to, to repeat the story very compactly, uh, once I got my hands on it, I handled it with gloves, took it to a bunch of copy shops, made zillions of copies, um, uh, sent it out from a variety of mailboxes, handled it only with gloves, and um, uh, sent it out to home and hobbyist computer magazines and, and organizations all across the country to make sure it got out. No idea whether my actions uh, had any actual influence. It was actually uh, the uh, government backed off um, later that same year, and it or uh, and it got actually published, as I mentioned, in '78, February '78. At which point it was over. Um, but I then proceeded to actually implement. I did my own trial implementation of the RSA algorithm uh, on my um, uh, Z80 machine, my Kremenko Z1. Uh, after this is year, you know, a couple of years later, where it had a lot more memory, had some I/O devices, and there was a program called MuMath, which was a symbolic algebra system. But the reason, the significance of MuMath is that it had a big num arithmetic package, uh, so un unlimited precision integers. So it was easy to code up the RSA algorithm. Got it working. It was dog slow. Um, but I proved, to, you know, I, I was able to satisfy myself that it actually did what it claimed to do, and um, that was sort of my my introduction to cryptography. Uh, then that combined with the the, the ideals that um, were in the air in the Xanadu project, um, uh, these ideals of liberation of of censorship of, of censorship freedom of intact history of privacy. Um, you know, projected all of those ideals onto this new enabling tool. Uh, so when the cypherpunk phenomena started happening, I was, you know, right there as part of it and all, all prepared to, um, to see the potential of the technology in those terms. Um, and when did you first uh, read the Satoshi Nakamoto paper? Oh, um, okay. So, um, so, so as far so crypto in the sense of cryptocurrency and smart <laughs> contracts and all that, So for me, smart contracts came decades before cryptocurrency, if you, if, if, with regard to the modern meaning of cryptocurrency. Back in 1983, 
Eric Drexler and I started working on the Agoric, what became what came out eventually as the Agoric Papers, published in 1988. I would say, looking back on it, are we didn't have the terminology then, but I would say are the first substantial smart contracts. Um, uh, so we imagined uh, automated computational markets with automated uh, auctions. We view the those as trying to solve distributed resource allocation problems. So you could build, um, you know, we realized that with the coming of decentralized computing, that trying to centrally plan the resource allocation problem, um, uh, th things like, you know, schedulers and, and other such uh, ways to allocate resources in computer systems, that doing it by the, the old central planning approach, which was the way that, that computing had been done up until then was going to run out of steam. And we needed to bring the invisible hand into the dynamics of what's happening in the computer system. So we saw dynamic pricing through things like auctions as essential to that. And we came up with a whole bunch of algorithms, um, including an algorithm that for doing a innovative auction, we call the escalator auction for auctioning off CPU time slices to do price-based scheduling with, with uh, congestion pricing, with a, a rental market for allocating memory space. Uh, so all of these were not trying to solve the, were not directed primarily at solving the issue that smart contracting today is trying to solve, which are the reallocation of assets significant at the human level. It was trying to solve problems internal to the computing system. But nevertheless, the algorithms themselves that we were designing were smart contracts, and they were designed for a decentralized, permissionless, crypto cryptographic distributed capability system. Then uh, Amex, the first split contracting system, which, which had mostly disjoint origins, uh, but was done by uh, primarily by uh, friend, uh, you know, uh, friends, uh, Phil Salen, who's the main visionary, uh, Chip Morningstar, who's who is chief architect of Amex and is now a uh, Atagoric. We had this whole vision of smart contracting that we were developing. We were we uh, quickly came in contact with Nick Zabo, who fleshed out the overall vision into a grand vision of smart contracting and coined the terminology, which we adopted. But all of this smart contracting is applied to commerce, including in the Agoric Open Systems Papers, kind of assume that somehow the issue of a decentralized, incorruptible currency is solved. We're kind of assuming that without having a good solution to that. And then we were imagining this whole world of smart contracting starting from that assumption. And Nick Zabo was trying to explain to me a alternate technological foundation for smart contracting that I was not getting at the time. We kept having these arguments and I was trying to convince him my perspective, he was trying to convince me of his perspective, and I just wasn't getting his perspective. And then years later, when I saw Ethereum, I thought, oh, that's what Nick was trying to explain to me. Um, so there's kind of this aha moment. So uh, the way I would, uh, and, so the way I would contrast it is that I was thinking very much in a loosely coupled decentralized manner of inspired by the market and the Hayekian account of the market of what happens between institutions and between individuals. And Nick was very much obsessed with, or not obsessed, I don't want to, was, was very much focused on internal controls within institutions, like internal accounting controls, like separation of duties, like double entry bookkeeping, and what it is to take to, that enables you to create a single institution that is much more trustworthy than the participants in the institution creating the institution, such that the institution itself can be credible and trustworthy over historical periods of time as the people composing the institution come and go and realize that that Byzantine fault tolerance, one of the, the foundational perspectives that gave rise to blockchain, 
was a form of internal control for building a single institution that was much stronger than any internal control that people had ever imagined before and can give rise to single institutions that were decentralized in the sense of tightly coordinated decentralizations, decentralized in the sense that no one can corrupt it, but it was centralized in the sense that they that the entire institution repeatedly had to come to a single decision that the entire institution agreed on that everybody participating was affected by. Whereas in the decentralized market, it's loosely coupled. It's not the case that everybody is, is has to participate or be concerned with any one decision. There's no one decision that everyone needs to agree to in the market or in the kind of loose decentralization that we were focused on. When Bitcoin happened, I was initially seeing it through the lens of sort of the computer science literature on Byzantine fault tolerance. So I knew that what was being claimed about Bitcoin was impossible. So I initially dismissed Bitcoin and I kept dismissing it actually for a few years. And it was Zuko, a good friend of mine who, who you know, creator of Zcash, um, but also, you know, early cypherpunk um, uh, involved with, um, with uh, Chaum's Digicash early on. And it was Zuko who kept telling me that, no, this Bitcoin thing, you really need to pay attention to it. And he kept having these arguments with me where I, he finally got me over the, the, the aha threshold where I understood that this was not claiming to solve the impossible problem that I thought it was claiming to do. It was doing the much more brilliant thing of figuring out to ask a different question. Um, it was the, the, the brilliant thing about proof, you know, right now, Agoric is doing proof of stake. We all, you know, the industry as a whole is moving to proof of stake, which is great. Proof of stake does go back to Byzantine fault tolerance as its foundation. But at the time, Bitcoin doing proof of work, the claims that it was making seemed impossible. But the alternate question that it was asking is it wasn't trying to get finality. It wasn't trying trying to produce a definitive answer with only a majority. It was instead building an architecture out of incentives such that once you had the confirmation depth um, sufficiently deep, it was increasingly uneconomical to, um, to do a reorg that, 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 that would retract a decision that was several confirmations back. So that was the you know the brilliant thing. It took me a long time to understand is it wasn't trying for for it. you couldn't understand the Bitcoin architecture looking at it just with computer science. You couldn't understand it using just economics. You had to look at it with economics and game theory and computer science all at the same time in order to understand not just what its solution is, but even to understand the construal of what problem it had set out to solve. Yeah, again, the cross-discipline, you know, element is coming back. Um, um, Mark, tell me, I mean, a, a bit about um, Algoric. I mean, you can now connect all of these dots since the 1980s in the early days of smart contracts and to, to what you are doing now and what why it's called Algoric and, and what do you do? Okay, so the reason it's called Agoric, uh, and this goes back to the Agoric Open Systems Papers, is it's a reference to the uh, Greek agora. Uh, the agora being both the meeting place and marketplace, the open air uh, marketplace uh, in in Athens, and uh, it's really essential that it was it was both the place of conversations and economic transactions at the same time, um, and that it was the you know the town square as well as the marketplace. So so Eric and I uh, called our first. Um, you know, uh, when we were putting together these papers with this vision of decentralized computational markets, we first called it the Agora. And then a friend of ours, Ted Kaler, uh, had this, you know, really wonderful recommendation. He said, don't use, an, don't call it after a noun. Don't coin a noun, coin an adjective, because a, not, a noun is exclusionary. It's saying, we're doing this, you're not. Whereas an adjective in, is inviting. 
is it says, okay, we're doing an agoric something, but you can do an agoric something else. It's saying that this is a broad category, a broad open, yeah, open-ended category of things which can be agoric. Um, so that's that's how we ended up with the adjective naming. And then uh, um, several of the founders of the modern agoric uh, were also in the mid-90s, uh, a founder of an earlier startup company called Agorix with an, with, uh, an S. Um, so at Agorix, uh, we actually did a lot of this pre-blockchain smart contracting technology. Uh, we actually built it. We built it in collaboration with Sun Labs and largely funded by Sun Labs. And then, uh, and then a little bit later uh, with Electric Communities, where the e-language was born. Uh, Electric Communities was doing uh, the first graphical decentralized social virtual reality. Um, uh, uh, Chip and Randy uh, of Electric Communities were, uh, uh, had earlier done Lucasfilm Habitat, which was the first graphical social virtual reality period. So at Electric Communities, we were doing it as a decentralized architecture. We're doing it as a decentralized architecture that had decentralized cryptographic object capability programming language foundations built into it as its foundations. So in both cases, with the Sun Labs contract and with the, electric, the collaboration with electric communities, we actually built a lot of the foundations for smart contracts. We built the cryptographic underpinnings, uh, and we actually built a lot of smart contracts with user interfaces. And a lot of the ideas that our the, the modern smart contracts we're building at Agoric are founded on, uh, started back then, in particular, the notion of uh, e-rights, the notion of electronic rights uh, as uh, rights that are exclusively transferable and assayable, where, uh, so it's a level of abstraction that's distinct from the object capability level of abstraction. Object capabilities, um, are based on the notion of an object reference, a protected pointer to an object as a transferable right to do something, but it's transfer by sharing. And uh, as with objects, when you receive an object reference in a, in a message pass, you just know that someone who had a right to send you a message sent you this object reference as an argument in the message, it's opaque. So with uh, e-rights, we built a level of abstraction on top where you could, um, the receiver could receive an exclusive rights transfer knowing reliably that they've received assets and what the assets have been in terms of where the assets might be fungible or non-fungible or you know, divisible. Um, there's a whole taxonomy of kinds of e-rights, but we ended up with a level of abstraction where you can handle e-rights in many cases, generically. And that gave us a new level of abstraction for higher order composition. Well, I'm just going to, I'm just going to mention a talk. It's a big topic in itself. I'll mention a talk, which I think does a good job of explaining it. You can send it later and we can add it. Don't, don't worry. It's fine. Okay. okay. <laughs> um, um, but the, the, the basic idea of higher order composition uh, is inspired by uh, the observation um, uh, from the way markets work, that the notion of property is an is itself an abstraction. It started off as with very, very concrete examples, like physical objects or territory of land. But once we had the abstraction of property as a kind of right that was tradable and a kind of right where you could tell what it was that you were receiving when you traded it, um, that we were then able to create all sorts of market institutions like auctions that could be parameterized by anything that was called property. So co contracts, many contracts, not all contracts, many contracts don't care about the particulars of the contract of the property that they're trading. They can be parameterized by any kind of contract. And then many contracts themselves create new derivative rights, which are then classified as property rights. So the composition is 
that the kind of rights that generic contracts can manipulate is also the kinds of rights that some contracts create. And by creating the kinds of rights that generic contracts manipulate, you can now compose these contracts through this abstract notion of property with, with the property rights created by other contracts to create the kind of rich, deep composition that we're used to in functional programming and object-oriented programming and in real-world markets. And, and, and you know, I claim that the way contracts are done in most of the rest of the modern world of smart contracting does not have this deep compositionality. It's you know, more like programming in a first-order language, and therefore the, the flatness of commerce that we're seeing in most of the world of smart contracting is an inevitable, is an inevitable consequence of the non-compositionality of the primitives that they're based on. Good. So... Uh I will I will leave for another episode the discussion about speed contract because uh, I don't want to take much more of your time. We have been more like almost an hour. Uh, for now, I mean, I will we will have a, a follow follow up of this. But for now, I mean, you have been I mean since the seventies in the computer industry and you have seen the internet since the very early days and you have actually met the the people that I mean made this right and that changed our world. How do you imagine? Where, where is this going? What do you think of Web3? And I mean, what, how do you imagine the world of computers and the networks in like 10 years? So putting time, putting time frames on things is always dangerous. I'm going to, I'm going to ignore uh, the part of your question that says in 10 years, and I'll just be, be much vaguer about uh, the, uh, the time framework that I'm talking about, and, and 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 frankly, thinking that it's probably going to be more than 10 years, but that's, but I but I, I want to stay vague on the time frame. But I really think that the ultimate promise of this whole area, this whole technological area, is opening up the benefits that we associate with terms like rule of law, terms like democracy, uh, due process, to open up the benefits of that to the world as a whole and to make those benefits reliable, incorruptible, and affordable. Right now, there's you know 4 billion people in the world live under regimes that you would not even think to describe as approximating the rule of law. Uh, they live under you know clearly oppressive governments, and the rest of us living in places that we would describe as rule of law uh, are so far from what we can understand as the ideal of rule of law um, that it's it's um, it really just gives us enough of a taste of rule of law to understand why we care about the rule of law, why benefits flow from that. But rule, but the benefits of rule of law uh, really only come about when the rules are understandable, they're unambiguous, they are uh, neutral, they don't make special cases for particular parties, um, they're administered in an incorruptible manner, uh, and for the modern world are non-jurisdictional. So it's already the case that all of the systems that provide rule of law that we're used to, that are that are you know the basis for modern civilization, are based on jurisdictional government. With the net, where most of our interactions are completely jurisdiction free. Right now, I'm talking to you. I have no idea where in the world you are, and for most purposes, I don't care. Uh, and all of the systems of rule of law that would secure our interesting cooperative arrangements with each other are based on jurisdictions, which there's already a complete mismatch. Um, uh, and then you, you, you take a look at all of the ways in which the best jurisdictional governments have to offer with regard to their approximation of rule of law, 
really sucks compared to the ideal. Uh, and then you take a look at what's possible with smart contracting. Uh, you know, you realize that, or we, you know, that that the upcoming revolution created by these technologies can be as big of a liberating step over current socio-political systems as um, as I'm going to just make the radical statement as big a step as things like the invention of democracy and the invention of you know due process and rights of the accused and and you know all of these these you know, most of the history of humanity until the last few centuries was a history of tyranny. And it's only been with these inventions, which were essentially social coordination conventions, that we ended up doing better than that history of tyranny. And these inventions are largely along the same lines of what we can amplify with this new technology of smart contracting. Everything that makes civilization work well, with these new technologies, we can make civilization work much better. And we can open it up to everyone. You know, when I started Cleros, I mean, I'm from Argentina and the, the vision was, I mean, Argentinians could already learn how to code and design whatever through the internet, but they could not contract with other people from other places of the world because nobody would trust Argentinian institutions because there was no rule of law. But if we have, you know, now we have a smart contract, you have payments in crypto. If you add, you know, like some solution mechanism to, to dis define, you know, disputes, then that can be a, a great tool for, for, I mean, yeah, for democracy and for inclusion of people into economic activity regardless of, of where, where they are. So, I mean, I think that we can discuss this in our next episode when, when you, you are invited again to the podcast. We, I mean, I have so many more questions to ask you. Uh, thank you very much, Mark, for being uh, here with us. You're welcome. Yeah, th thank you for this conversation. And I'm really looking forward to next time. Hey, I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Mark Miller and hopefully you learned as much as I did about the early days of the internet, Xanadu, and some ideas of what we can expect for the future. Remember, you can subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and see you on the next episode. Bye-bye. <laughs>